So today I wandered out of my house to get takeout from my favorite neighborhood Italian restaurant. The owner, who I know, he's this lovely man. He cooks for everybody in that restaurant. It's a very small place. It's, it's basically his house. And every night, he cooks every single meal for everybody who walks into his house. It feels like you're being welcomed into somebody else's home. And after he cooks everybody's meals, he walks around, he shakes their hands, he has a chat with them, maybe gives them a slice of free tiramisu. I don't know what I would do without this guy. Every single time somebody visits me in Seattle, I bring them to this restaurant. Walking in there just puts me at ease. It's like walking into an old friend's house. Anyway, I decided I needed to patronize him. So I got takeout, because obviously in these times, it's basically illegal to sit down at a restaurant. And when he gave me my bag of food, he said, You know, this, this virus is teaching us so much. But the most important thing that it's teaching us is to respect one another. And to treat one another with dignity. Because it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. And by the way, this guy is originally from Africa, from the Atlas Mountain region. He hopped around Europe for a long time, settled in Italy before finally coming here to Seattle and opening up a restaurant of his own. Anyway, he said, we must treat each other well because this virus, it doesn't discriminate. He said, I'm not that good at chemistry but I know that this virus doesn't care where you're from on Earth, or if you're even from Earth. You could be from the moon, or from Jupiter. It doesn't matter. The astrobiologist in me started thinking, well, if you were from the moon or from Jupiter, you'd probably be safe, because the virus, like us, evolved here on Earth. Its biochemical machinery is compatible with our own, in that it can hijack our cells, insert its genetic material into our cells, and our cells would read that genetic material. Something that evolved on Jupiter probably wouldn't use exactly the same machinery as us. It would be incompatible, like, I don't know, a Mac and a PC. But I bit my lip. Now is not the best time for an astrobiological lesson. I thanked him and then stepped out the door, trying to limit my contact as much as possible with other human beings, and realized, wow, he's so right. In this dire situation, sometimes we find voids in our lives that we didn't even know could be voids, especially in this age of connectivity. So let's use our connectivity to try to fill those voids. And I encourage you to reach out to somebody who maybe you haven't reached out to in a long time. Somebody who might be struggling. Somebody who might be alone. And just say hi, whether it's a text message, an impromptu phone call, or FaceTime. Just let them know you're here. You see them. And they're not alone. Because we're in this together, as Earthlings, and perhaps 
those crazy Jupiter life forms too. Part of this episode has been a long time coming. The other part? Spur of the moment. My brother, John Wong, is an up-and-coming medical professional. He's worked various jobs in healthcare, from emergency medical technician gigs to optometry. The last time my brother was on Strange New Worlds, all the way back in episode 36, we talked about diet and nutrition, and that oddly snarky food synthesizer aboard the USS Discovery. Now, it's always been my goal to bring John back to speak about medical ethics and some of the ethical dilemmas that have appeared in Star Trek, given his ever-growing expertise in medicine and his strong moral compass. But now, with the coronavirus pandemic sweeping across the world, there's a whole new dimension to the topic of medical ethics, one that's, unfortunately, up close and personal. In this timely episode of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast, we're going to discuss vaccines, how they work and why your flu shot isn't going to protect you from the coronavirus, what happens when multiple ethical pillars come in conflict, like in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode titled Ethics, and, finally, how healthcare providers are struggling with medical ethics dilemmas due to the coronavirus. It's a tough episode, but also an important one. Computer, engage. So, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, John Wong. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Last time we spoke on this podcast, you were working as a medical scribe in San Francisco, and you were in the middle of the process of applying to medical school. Now you've just heard some incredible news. You got into med school, so congrats. Thank you. I did. Yeah, I'm very happy about that. There's a lot of work um, and a long time coming, but I'm (laughs) very happy. Now, I'm willing to bet that a large fraction of our listeners have never applied to med school. I mean, I haven't personally done (laughs) that. So can you give us a quick rundown of what that whole saga was like? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, applying to medical school is a very competitive process. You know, I'm sure similar to applying to a lot of graduate programs. Seems Uh, like it was a lot harder than applying to to grad school, to be honest. (laughs) I guess, yeah. I guess one of the things that I learned about, you know, applying to medical school is that um, it's more than just getting good grades and doing well on standardized tests. They are really looking for people who are motivated to to practice medicine and have kind of character qualities that uh, will lead to good physicians, you know, things like being compassionate towards other people, being open-minded to other cultures and, um, you know, being a hard worker. So it takes a long time to kind of accumulate all the necessary work experience and kind of, you know, buff up your resume and prove to them that you're capable of it. So that's how I guess it's a lot of work compared to applying to some other programs, perhaps. 
Yeah, you need to be not just really smart, but also like a well-rounded and good person. And you need to be able to prove that in your resume. And then also in interviews, right? You had to go in and actually uh, interview for the for the job, essentially. Exactly, yeah. And the interview is probably the most intimidating part, just because you're like in a foreign city and, you know, you've got this one chance. So it's a lot of pressure, but... Um, I guess practicing medicine is also, you know, there's a lot of pressure in that. So it's a good practice for that. Now, if you were to guess, which of the Star Trek doctors do you think would have the easiest time getting through the current 21st century medical school application process, given that you just went through it and you know that it's not just about brain smarts, but also about, like you said, compassion and uh, hard work and things like that? Huh, that's an interesting question. I guess, um, I mean, I was a big fan of the Enterprise series growing up, and I always liked Dr. Phlox for, you know, the reasons that we kind of talked about. He's not only very smart and very well-versed in the practice of medicine, but he's a compassionate uh, physician and kind of, you know, supportive of his patients, as opposed to some of the other Star Trek physicians I can think of that aren't quite like that, like, <laughs> like the doctor. Yeah, some of the uh, <laughs> bad bedside manners, huh? <laughs> exactly, yeah. I don't know how they would fare in an interview process, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be hilarious. Yeah, seeing the, the EMH try to go through this interview process. Um, I mean, he's definitely got the book smarts, but um, <laughs> maybe failing at some of the other aspects. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, Flox is a good choice there. So when we were on a family vacation in Argentina last winter, you got the exciting news of getting a med school interview. And that day forward, we spent just as much time practicing interview questions as we did touring around Argentina. Uh, you basically handed me and our sister Elisa a list of interview questions, and we would drill you. And I have to say that the highlight of the trip for me was not the glaciers or the waterfalls that we saw, which were all very impressive, but uh, really it was learning a lot about medicine and the medical ethics from you. And so... One of those interview questions was about vaccines, and that seems like a kind of appropriate thing to talk about at the present stage of where we're all at in life right now during these trying times of the coronavirus. Um, we, we had a, a really unfortunate clip, I guess, came out a few weeks ago about President Trump getting, uh, you know, schooled about vaccines. He thought that the flu vaccine would work on the coronavirus, and the experts were telling him, no, no, that's not actually true. Um, so, John Wong, <laughs> can, you, uh, can you tell us what is a vaccine and how does it work? Yeah, that's a good question and very relevant to today's times. So simply put, a vaccine is basically a dead form or an inactive form of a pathogen, um, whether it be a virus or bacteria or otherwise, that you introduce into your body to kind of stimulate your immune system to help your immune system recognize that pathogen in the future and mount a robust immune response. So, you know, you have white blood cells that produce antibodies, they're called B cells, that produce kind of random antibodies that will recognize, you know, anything that may be foreign um, or dangerous to you. And when you become infected with a pathogen, those B cells that produce antibodies that specifically recognize that pathogen are then activated and they kind of clone themselves. Uh, they go through a process called clonal selection where those specific cell populations will start to multiply 
and produce basically like a standing army of activated B cells or plasma cells that then are prepared to start secreting antibodies into your bloodstream to mount an immune response. And so that's what a vaccine is. You can think of it as like a safe primary infection. So you basically, in a controlled manner, infect yourself with a safe form of the pathogen so that the next time that you see the pathogen, your body already has a standing army of white blood cells that are ready to attack it. Mm. And so why doesn't a flu vaccine help fight against the coronavirus? After all, it's said that the coronavirus gives you flu-like symptoms. Good question. The reason is because they are totally different things, <laughs> contrary to what Trump may believe. So the antibodies um, that these B cells or plasma cells produce, they are basically just these small kind of Y-shaped proteins that bind to and recognize parts of the pathogen, usually like surface proteins on the pathogen coat, like on the bacterial cell wall or cell membrane or the viral envelope. And they recognize those specific proteins, they bind to them. And so the simple answer is that the surface proteins on the coronavirus and on the flu are totally different. Antibodies that recognize the flu surface proteins on the flu virus will recognize surface proteins on the coronavirus. So if you get a flu vaccine, which you should, you're going to make a standing army of B cells that recognize surface proteins on the flu virus. And then if you get infected by the coronavirus, that standing army of B cells is basically useless. They're not going to recognize that and they're not going to mount an immune response. And furthermore, um, you know, there are many strains of the flu and the different flus actually have different surface proteins. So not all flu vaccines really work against all kind of serotypes of the flu. So if you've heard of like the HN numbers for a flu, mm. like you always hear this year, it's like H1N1 flu virus. Well, those that H and N basically stand for two common surface proteins that we use to categorize the flu. Oh, interesting. H1N1, you know, has two specific surface proteins versus like, I don't know, H2N2 would have different surface proteins of that same family. Um, for our purposes, it's really useful to kind of categorize the flu virus. And then we can create a vaccine. We create the flu vaccine basically every year. We like create new vaccines because the flu reproduces so rapidly or evolves so rapidly. And so we need to basically estimate which specific flu subtype is going to be common in this coming year. And the World Health Organization kind of makes that determination. And then people get to work on creating a vaccine specifically for that subtype of flu virus that is predicted to be common in the world during that year. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of really good information. It seems like it's a whole involved study to actually try to predict what kinds of flu viruses will crop up each year. And it takes about a year to, I guess, prepare all of those vaccines. Does that bode for a very long time scale in terms of developing a vaccine that is specifically for the coronavirus? Are we, would you say like many months or maybe years out from developing a vaccine for the coronavirus? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, Developing a vaccine is definitely a difficult process. First of all, you would need to like kind of isolate something that the vaccine could uh, recognize. 
And then you have to, you know, test it and make sure that it actually works in vivo, if you will, and that it's safe. So there's all these kind of regulations you have to go through. And the last estimates I saw is that we're pretty far off from having a vaccine, up to a few months to like even a year out, I think. Um, there are groups that are working on it currently, but the last I heard, we're not very close to having even clinical trials or um, certainly administering it clinically. Yeah, because even after you develop the potential vaccine, you need to run tests, like you said, in vivo, which I assume, based on my rudimentary Latin, means in a live subject. You know, does it actually protect a living human being from, uh, from right, exposure yeah. to coronavirus? Yeah, well, thank you for that excellent uh, recap of vaccines and how they work and uh, the state of our knowledge on when we can expect a coronavirus vaccine. So let's turn to uh, medical ethics now. One of the biggest things that I learned from helping you study for your interviews was that there are four pillars of medical ethics. I had no idea that there were these four pillars. Um, can you just quickly say what each of those four pillars are? Yeah, so four pillars of medical ethics. And this is kind of Western medicine. Um, it's good to keep in mind that different cultures may value different things when it comes to medicine and just in general have different cultural values and beliefs. But generally in modern medicine and especially Western medicine, the four medical ethics that we talk about are number one, do no harm to the patient. So never make a patient's condition worse than it already is. Uh, number two is always acting in the best interest of the patient. So what that means is if there are kind of multiple treatment options for a patient or for a patient's condition, always select the treatment option that will show the most improvement and will help the patient the most. Number three is patient autonomy. So always respect a patient's wishes. Patients always have the right to choose their own healthcare plan. And again, keep in mind that all these ethics, you know, there's gray areas in all of these. So for example, you know, if a, if a patient makes a decision that severely impacts the health of other people, then you, know, you, you may not um, respect their autonomy in that case. And so there's gray area in all of these. Uh, and then number four, the last pillar is justice, which means allocating medical resources fairly, especially when there's a limited supply of medical resources. And by fairly, I mean not discriminating who gets medicine and healthcare based on anything except clinical needs. So, you know, if you have a rich and a poor patient, it doesn't matter that one's rich and that's one, one's poor, that, you know, one's the senator and one's like a homeless man. You should base your judgment of who gets the medicine based on who is more likely to have a positive outcome and survive and, you know, have a healthy life. So I wanted to talk to you about this episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that is very appropriately called Ethics, um, that's the title of the episode, because it really deals with, in a very direct way, these medical ethical pillars and the gray areas between them, just like you were talking about. Um, so to summarize this episode for our listeners, at the top of the episode, Worf suffers a catastrophic injury in the cargo bay. Basically, a container falls on his back, and it ends up immobilizing his entire lower body. His legs are completely paralyzed, he can't walk, and he can't even stand. And so Worf says, When a Klingon can no longer stand and face his enemies as a warrior, 
when he becomes a burden to his friends and family. It is time for the head bar. Time for him to die. There must be other options. No, there are not. I will not live as an object of pity or shame. My life as a Klingon is over. And as a result of this injury, Worf decides to perform the Hekbat ceremony, a ritual Klingon suicide. And he asks his friend, Commander Riker, to help him perform the ceremony. You know, Riker is absolutely appalled at this turn of events, and especially at Worf seeking his help in taking Worf's own life. So Riker goes to Captain Picard and says, I have always tried to keep an open mind not to judge someone else's culture by my own, but for me to be part of this ceremony. I understand from Dr. Crusher that Worf will never regain the use of his legs. That doesn't mean that his life is over. That's a very human perspective, Will. For a Klingon in Worf's position, his life is over. I can't accept that. And uh, let's talk about Riker and Picard's discussion about whether or not to assist Worf in the Hekbat ceremony. Now, Riker, of course, loathes the idea of assisting a friend in suicide, but Picard's point of view is that this is part of Worf's culture, and we must respect it even if we don't understand it ourselves. If you were in Riker's position, what do you think you would do? Yeah, it's a tough one, right? So from Riker's point of view, you know, he's acting as a friend. So it's certainly a little bit different than acting as um, maybe Worf's doctor. So a different role, right? So if I were in that situation, just acting as a friend, I think I would probably react in a similar way to Riker. I would be a little bit appalled at the prospect of, you know, helping a friend that I know so dearly uh, basically commit suicide when, in my opinion... It's not worthy of kind of ending your own life. You can still live a very fulfilled life, uh, even if you're paralyzed, you know, or paraplegic. But again, I think that it's important to recognize, you know, cultural practices. And so Worf certainly comes from a different world and a different culture than, than Riker does. And it is important for us not to be too ethnocentric and kind of impose our own beliefs and our own cultures on other people. But as a, as a friend, I don't know that I could necessarily help Worf end his own life. I would probably try and convince him not to do that. I would try and convince him to maybe look past his Klingon culture and accept living as a paraplegic, even though that is incredibly hard for him to do. But having grown up with that culture of my own, the idea of embracing that Klingon culture and killing a friend of mine is something that, you know, is really appalling to me personally. And that's exactly what Riker attempts to do. He goes back to Worf and tries to share with Worf what Worf means to himself and also the rest of the family of the Enterprise D crew. As a doctor, can you give me a, an example of a more earthbound situation where a patient's cultural beliefs clashes with standard medical practice or standard Western medical practice? Um, and, and what is the ethical thing to do in that situation? You know, there's there's lots of examples. Um, so, you know, whether it be someone who, you know, doesn't believe in vaccines because, I don't know, religious practices, or they just grew up not believing in vaccines and it's not a a thing that they do, their entire family never got vaccinated, they think that it's dangerous, 
you know, their parents never took them to get vaccinated as a kid. And so they don't get vaccinated and they don't vaccinate their kids. Um, all you can really do as a healthcare professional is educate your patients and make recommendations. And this kind of goes into the whole patient autonomy thing. You can't really ever impose your own beliefs onto a patient or force a patient to do anything that they don't want. And of course, again, there's gray areas with this, right? You know, if a patient is severely sick, say, I don't know, with the coronavirus, and they want to go wander around outside and potentially spread it to other people, maybe you weigh things differently in that case, right? Because it, it poses such a threat to, to other lives and to the health of other people. You need to consider that as well. But just kind of in a silo, you never really should force a patient to do something that they don't want to do or to take a treatment that they don't want to take. Um, another example I can think of, you know, people's lives are, are different. Everyone has different values and grows up differently. So, you know, I've had some scenarios where you may be, say, dealing with uh, like a high-profile athlete, say, and their athletics is their life. That's what they do. And, you know, maybe they're a football player and they're in college playing football and they want to go pro. And this is kind of like the only thing they can imagine themselves doing and the only thing that they've ever done in their entire life. And their whole self-identity is kind of wrapped up around being a football player, just the same way that Worf's personal identity was wrapped up around being a Klingon warrior, right? That's what they are. And they can't possibly imagine not having that. But then, you know, something goes terribly wrong. Maybe they suffer a catastrophic injury, just the same way Worf did, right? And they want to do everything they can do to get back onto the playing field, to playing football. And they kind of request of the doctor to perhaps do a procedure that isn't really standard and, you know, maybe has kind of more of a high risk and you wouldn't really do it on someone in this situation who is like relatively healthy, but not healthy enough to play football, but healthy enough to live a happy life. And if you do this procedure, you're kind of putting them at greater risk by like introducing more trauma to their body that's already been injured. But they really want to do it because that's what they want. They're like, I'll do anything to get back onto the football field. If I can't get back onto the football field, my life is over, right? And so it's kind of a similar situation to the one that warps in, right? If I can't go back to being a Klingon warrior. My life as I know it is over. And so those are certainly difficult situations to be in. And as a, as a medical practitioner, you have to kind of balance the patient's desires with your own ethics of, of not harming the patient. And it, can be, it can be a very difficult decision to make. Yeah, that's actually a perfect segue into the next part of this episode. So Worf is struggling with this injury and Picard and Riker are struggling with what to do over the Heckbot ceremony. Meanwhile, um, Dr. Crusher, the Enterprise's chief medical officer, is unwilling to let Worf commit suicide under her watch, and she's developed a neural transducer. Uh, these are basically devices that Worf can wear on his legs to stimulate his leg muscles with his brain. Uh, these neural transducers would give the the Klingon 60 to 70% of his motor control back after a long period of adjustment to them. Uh, but Worf is still really dissatisfied with this. He would, he would just be a fraction of the warrior that he originally was. 
And in this Star Trek episode, we are introduced to another medical scientist named Dr. Toby Russell. Uh, she joins the ship um, because she's an expert in this type of trauma, and she has developed a new technique called a genotronic replicator, which is in preliminary stages of research. This genotronic replicator could basically create from scratch a brand new spinal column for Worf, but the procedure only has a 37% success chance. In other words, there's a 63% chance that Worf will die as a result of the procedure. Um, and so Dr. Russell circumvents Dr. Crusher to offer Worf the possibility of this new untested research. Uh, what do you think of Dr. Russell putting out this new untested method on the table? Was she right to give Worf that information? Or was Dr. Crusher right to try to withhold that information from Worf? Well, certainly, I don't think it's ever really right to withhold information from a patient that is relevant to their health care or their health outcome. So I, I guess I would agree with Dr. Russell in this case. Um, I think, you know, Worf should certainly be made aware of all the options in front of him and aware of all the potential risk. I mean, that's critically important, right, that um, he knows the, the benefits as well as the risks um, to any procedure that he undergoes. And so the choice between going with Dr. Crusher's approach and Dr. Russell's method is a matter of pitting these two ethical pillars against each other. On, on the one hand, you have the do-no-harm, which Dr. Crusher's is definitely a do-no-harm type of thing, versus patient autonomy, because Worf ends up deciding that he would rather undergo the genotronic surgery than live with 60 to 70% of his motor function. And so Worf tells them he wants to perform this risky procedure. Dr. Crusher, on the other hand, wants to minimize the risk of Worf dying. What is the right thing to do in this situation? Which of these two pillars, when they're in conflict with each other, which one wins out? How do you decide? Yeah, it's a great question. And the, the answer is that there is no easy answer. Um, <laughs> and that's probably why this episode is so intellectually stimulating. And yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Some people think that the pillar of doing no harm is the most important pillar, right? First, do no harm. That should be your top priority at all times, some people think. More important to not harm the patient than it is to help the patient. And that's certainly a valid point of view. Not everyone agrees with that, but there's a camp that, that does believe that. Other people would say, you know, it, it should really be up to the patient. Patient autonomy comes first, right? That's what should be the top priority. As long as the patient knows all the risks and the benefits of any procedure and they are making a completely informed decision where all the information has been disclosed to them and they understand it thoroughly, they should be able to decide to do anything that they want that's within their right. It's their human right to choose what treatment they get. It's not a doctor's right to decide the type of life someone else gets to live. Another thing that I guess we should mention is that there may be some concerns with Dr. Russell bringing up the procedure herself to a patient. You may be concerned that, and I think probably Dr. Crusher is concerned, that there's kind of an ulterior motive going on here, right? She's maybe not 
concerned with Worf's well-being, as she is so much with pushing her own research through and gaining critical acclaim amongst the medical community and the Starfleet community. And that's certainly a valid concern. And I would be equally concerned if I were the chief medical officer overseeing all of the medical procedures that are happening uh, under my watch. And I think that should also be considered when presenting that information to the patient, because that could color the patient's interpretation of the procedure, right? If, if someone comes along and says, you know, I have this new novel thing, it may work or may not, it, it almost seems like too good to be true, like it just drops out of the sky, and you may question whether or not they're actually doing this for your best interest or for their best interest. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Well, in the end, it's actually Captain Picard who goes and convinces Dr. Crusher to go forth with the genotronic procedure. Beverly Crusher tells Picard, The first tenet of good medicine is never make the patient any worse. Just like you said, right? She's probably part of that camp that believes that that's the most important of, of the four pillars. And she goes on to say, Right now, Worf is alive and functioning. If he goes into that operation, he could come out a corpse. And then Picard says, This may not be good medicine, but for Worf, it may be his only choice. And so now you get these intertwining layers of the cultural conundrum about what to do with respect and Worf's culture, as well as this battle between the pillars of patient autonomy versus do no harm. Um, And they end up going into the procedure and Worf nearly dies, but he makes it out alive thanks only to the redundancy of Klingon anatomy. Uh, In the end, everything is all right, but in Dr. Crusher's eyes, this still doesn't forgive Dr. Russell for doing what she did, because as you said, Dr. Russell basically is is gambling with patients' lives in order to forward her own medical research agenda. And Crusher says to Russell, You scare me, doctor. You risk your patients' lives and justify it in the name of research. Genuine research takes time. Sometimes a lifetime of painstaking, detailed work in order to get any results. Not for you. You take shortcuts right through living tissue. You put your research ahead of your patients' lives. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a violation of our most sacred trust. It's such a tricky call, right? I mean, as Dr. Russell points out, her research could save millions of lives in the future once she perfects the technique, but she's risking and potentially sacrificing lives in the present moment to be able to reach those goals. I was wondering if you just have any final thoughts on this episode with regard to this very muddled clash of medical ethics that gets into so many different gray areas here. Yeah, it really is. An extremely difficult decision, and there is probably no right answer. I do certainly respect Dr. Crusher in this episode. I think that her concern for her patients is really a great quality for a physician, and um, her desire not to harm her patients is, is something that is very admirable and something that should be emulated. But I think in the end, I do agree with 
Captain Picard. Maybe not so much Dr. Russell, because again, I have questions about her motivation, but I think Captain Picard kind of nails it on the head, where he says that you need to consider patient autonomy. You need to consider Worf's beliefs and his desires, because people's culture really impacts the quality of life that they have, right? So for Worf, even allowing him to live with 60% of his function, for him, that's not living a quality life. And that's not living a life worth living, which to us is hard to wrap your, your head around. And that's what we were saying earlier on. You know, if I were a friend, um, it would be hard for me to understand that. But as a practicing physician, you do need to understand that. You need to try to understand that. So for Worf, he would rather die than go on living a life that, in his estimation, isn't worth living. And so, you know, as a physician, is that not also your right to ensure that your patients are not just alive, but living a fulfilled life? I mean, there's a difference between kind of living and surviving, right? What's the point of being alive if you can't accomplish the things that you want to accomplish and be happy in your own skin and feel a sense of self-worth? So I think that Picard is certainly right here, and uh, to say that you know it should be Worf's decision in the end, and that's I think how I would approach it if I were the physician. Again, all you can really do is educate your patients, tell them you know what their options are, what the risks are with each treatment option, and then allow them to make a decision for themselves. But of course, you also have to consider like how these things would affect the patient and their family and the people close to them. And again, this isn't your decision as a physician. This should be left up to the patient, but maybe help them make that decision by understanding how this is going to affect their family and their, their friends. So for example, you know, Worf has like a small son, right. Who is basically lives alone with him. And so it would be important to consider how his death would affect his only son, right? That very well may change someone's opinion as a parent. You know, I would rather die than live with 60% function. But, you know, now that I have a small child, I need to consider, you know, how that will affect them. Maybe I'd rather live. I'd rather live with 60% of my function and still be able to take care of my young child than die. But it may not. Who knows? Um, and then similarly, like, how would it affect the enterprise, right? The ability for enterprise to continue without or chief tactical officer. So these are all considerations that you would be remiss not to discuss uh, when it comes to selecting the treatment option that you want to pursue. Yeah, those are great points. I really love the insights that uh, it's not just about surviving, it's about living. And part of living, of course, is not just your internal bodily functions, but also your external presence in the world and how you interface with your family, your friends, your job, and all of those need to be addressed and brought to the patient's mind, of course, as you said, it's the patient's ultimate decision what to do, but that's something that they need to process themselves, right? And how they fit into the grander scope of their life and and, and their culture and balance those out. And, and there's probably no right decision, like you said. And luckily, it all worked out for Worf. <laughs> <laughs>
So let's end this podcast by circling back to the coronavirus pandemic. We just talked all about clashes between pillars of medical ethics. And in this present moment, there are some medical ethics issues that are uh, coming really up to the forefront and determining whether people live or die. So we are already seeing shortages of medical supplies like masks and ventilators and the like in hospitals as medical professionals try to fight the coronavirus pandemic. How do the principles of medical ethics inform how we ration our limited resources in this great time of need. These are times where we are severely limited on resources. Like you said, masks, um, those N95 masks, as well as ventilators. You know, we're being forced to evaluate, really diligently consider who gets treatment here, right? So say even if you had maybe like a 95-year-old person come in with coronavirus and they're maybe in severe respiratory distress or respiratory failure, and you have another patient who's maybe 18 months old and also in need of a ventilator, but maybe doing a little bit better than the 95-year-old and came into the clinic after the 95-year-old, do you give the ventilator to the patient who needs it more, which is that 95-year-old patient? Or do you give it to the 18-month-old who probably has a better chance of surviving and you know living longer, right? They have more years ahead of them, right? You're kind of saving more years by giving it to the patient who doesn't need it as badly. And that's a big time ethical dilemma in medicine, right? Do you follow your guidelines of justice and give it to the patient who came in first and also the patient who needs it more? Or do you kind of scrap that and give your very limited resources to the patient that you think is going to have the better outcome and um, have more years. You're going to save more years, right? Could I ask you if you were in that exact position as a medical professional, which one you would choose? It's tough. Um, you know, ideally, you, you want to save both. Um, and you want to do everything in your power to help both patients. But if, you know, if it was just in a silo, and I had to make a split-second decision, I would give it to the 18-month-old child because from a utilitarian point of view, the potential to do more good is there, and the likelihood that you're going to achieve that goal is also higher than giving it to the 95-year-old, even if the 95-year-old comes in first and is in more desperate need of the equipment, of the ventilator. Um, Can I ask a uh, profoundly difficult question, which is, if the 95-year-old was already on that ventilator and the 18-year-olds came in and needed the ventilator, would you take the 95-year-old off the ventilator to give it to the 18-month-old? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's really tough. Um, you know, again, I, I should say, you know, I'm not a doctor and um, I don't not have yet. a lot, <laughs> not yet. I don't have a lot of experience in making su such, you know, difficult and profound decisions, like you said. Um, but again, if, 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 if I had to make a, a split-second decision, well, you know, th there's so many things to consider. First of all, how is a 95-year-old doing on that ventilator? Have they improved? Do I now think that there's a high chance that they can recover from the coronavirus? 
did I never think there was a high chance they could recover from the coronavirus? Is it feasible to kind of transfer the ventilator in time, right? Like get it disinfected and get it prepared to use for the next patient in time. If not, I would obviously keep it with the 95 year old. But, you know, again, all things being equal, I would have to fall back on my desire to do the greatest amount of good for the population at large. You know, if I think there's a low chance of this 95-year-old surviving with the ventilator and a low chance of the 18-month-old surviving without the ventilator, but a high chance of the 18-month-old surviving with the ventilator, it's so tough, but I would, I would rather condemn one person to death than basically condemn two people to death. It's, it's not really ever up to a healthcare professional to decide who dies and who lives based on anything except clinical needs. And in this case, I believe that the clinical needs dictate that the 18-month-old should receive the life-saving care. You brought up a lot of good points in that analysis. You talked about details that were not in the premise, you know, the, the extra information that you would want to know about each patient's situation and how they've been changing over time, which is all, I'm sure, the right things to be thinking about in this type of dire situation. I could I could see, and our listeners can't see this, but I could see like the, the pain and the thought that was going on in your face when you were confronted with this hypothetical scenario that I, that I gave you. And I can just imagine that it must be such a burden on doctors who have to make these decisions every day these days, you know, emotionally draining decisions about uh, who lives and who dies. And it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of starship captains, you know, who goes on an away mission, who goes into harm's way. Um, we see Starfleet captains struggle with that so much on Star Trek uh, and rarely, but but sometimes we also see the doctors uh, struggle with those decisions too. And um I just want to ask one last question to you, John, which is in this time where doctors and medical professionals and healthcare providers are making these emotionally draining, terrible decisions and putting them their own lives at risk to basically save thousands of people every day right now, what, what can we as normal human beings do for our healthcare practitioners at this time? What would you, what is the one message that you want to send to everybody, to the general populace about what they should do in this situation to help make things better? That's a good question. And my answer is just listen to your healthcare professionals. I mean, that's what I'm doing. I'm not a healthcare professional right now, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> and that's what I'm doing. I'm just listening to the recommendations that they make and trying to follow follow them as diligently as I can. And so, you know, one thing that you can do, and I'm sure that the, all the listeners know this by now, is, you know, stay away from other people, stay quarantined in your own homes. If you ha do have to go out, try and, you know, stay six feet away from people. Don't shake hands with people. Don't hug people. I mean, it seems obvious, but you still see people out there doing it. Wash your hands often, disinfect things that you touch um, often. If you go out and buy groceries, consider disinfecting the, the bag handles or the, the groceries themselves, the bags. And, you know, cancel all things that aren't emergencies, um, including doctor's appointments, right? So if you have a doctor's appointment coming up that's not a critical case, maybe it's just your annual physical, go ahead and, and cancel that or reschedule because, you know, 
honestly, going to a doctor's office right now probably <laughs> increases your risk of getting the virus more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And you also don't want to be spreading it yourself to other people, especially like a healthcare facility where there are at-risk people in those facilities that can't really be moved from there. And it's important for us to try and protect those folks as well, right? So consider canceling dentist appointments and doctor's appointments and allow doctors to take care of the people that, that really need care right now. Well, John Wong, thank you so much for talking to me about these really difficult issues. You've helped me think through a lot of intricacies with regards to medical ethics, and you've brought up new things for me to think about and and chew on. And I just really appreciate you spending the time to talk about science and medicine and Star Trek. So stay healthy, and I hope to be able to see you soon again in person. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be back. Um, And to all the listeners out there, stay safe and uh, stay positive, and we're all going to get through this. If you've made it this far, I think you'll agree with me that John Wong is going to make a fantastic doctor. Someone to admire the way we do Flocks, Crusher, or McCoy. Just like John said, we all have a responsibility to help in this crisis by maintaining physical distance from others and keeping ourselves informed of the latest research. To that end, I've put a few links to trustworthy coronavirus stories and articles in the show notes for you to peruse. Next time on Strange New Worlds, planetary scientists Peter Gao and James T. Keen return to the show to help me recap the exciting first season of Star Trek Picard. You won't want to miss it. Until then, see you out there.